Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of the How's My Hand Path podcast. This week on the show, we have Mr. Bob Weeks. For those of you who don't know, Bob is a journalist who covers golf here in Canada. Um, he's part of the TSN network, which is basically the major sports network in Canada. Being Canadian, I've always been a longtime admirer of Bob's. I've seen him on TV. I love the work that he does. Um, you know, he spends a lot of time covering a lot of different stories that maybe don't necessarily get a lot of traction or that should get more, and he does that really well. So we talk a little bit about Mike Weir and Stephen Ames, which are basically the two biggest Canadian golfers in our history. Um, really fun episode, and uh, we really hope you guys enjoy it. So here's the interview. All right, Bob, uh, we'll, we'll jump right into it. I actually, this, we were kind of just talking about this. The first thing I want to know is how's, how's work been different with the whole situation? Well, certainly we have a very skeleton staff at TSN. In the, uh, there's no live production really going on, no sports centers, no Golf Talk Canada. And so we're doing a lot of stuff remotely. Thank, thankfully, technology has allowed us to do a lot of stuff, as you know very well. Uh, but on our phones, we have an app that can basically broadcast into the studio. So we're using that. And, um, and we're, uh, we're just trying to do as much as we can with as, as few resources as we can. And it, it, you know, you get creative. It's, uh, it's actually been interesting in certain circumstances to try and uh, find a way to get uh, a story out or get a, get a, a video online or something. But um, certainly it's, uh, it's challenging times. And uh, with no live sports to cover, that, that makes TSN's programming a lot, more, a lot more difficult to fill up. You guys are trying to find ways to cover stories that obviously – you know, there's there's not much live sports going on to talk about, I guess. So you got to start thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, where we, I did the story, as you know, with you and, uh, and another gentleman, Ralph Bauer, to talk about, uh, you know, keeping your game in check remotely, something that you know very well all about. For sure. Um, and then and then talking about what the players are doing. We had, there are, believe it or not, a couple of small mini tours still going. We had a Canadian, Jared Dutois, shoot 59 uh, in the, one of those events a couple, the last week, I guess. So, there's a few stories, but it's uh, it's you have to sort of get creative a little bit about how you do things, and um, I keep using that word creative, but but there's enough stories going on. We have the Olympic story now breaking with uh, Canada not going to the Olympics, so I've been talking to the golfers who would have been on the Olympic team and trying to put a story together for that. So it's uh, certainly different times than that I'm used to covering. At uh, and it seems very strange. It was just a little over a week ago I was watching the first round of the Players Championship down at Sawgrass, and it almost seemed like things were not quite normal, but at least there was tournament golf being played. I wanted to ask, what was that week like last week? Because I would imagine that with the NBA canceling the season prior to the first round, that it must have been a completely different atmosphere. Yeah. So it, I mean, it's, the week started off more or less normal, I would say. On, um, it's interesting, you know, on Tuesday, they had a, a concert around the 17th hole with the chain smokers, and there was probably, I don't know, three or 4,000 people all jammed into a space, which just seems preposterous right now but yeah. that sort of was one of the things that started the week and then you know they they went ahead with the first round on on uh, Thursday it was Wednesday night however that the NBA sort of dropped the uh, the first ball with uh, uh, by canceling the, the season or postponing the season and then um, at noon we had a press conference with Jay Monahan, the commissioner who said well okay we're going to play the rest of this week and the next three weeks with um, with no fans no but nobody in the gallery just the golfers and then eight hours later they just canceled uh the tournament completely and and we were standing out in front of the clubhouse as the players came to pick up their gear and uh and take it back obviously they weren't going to play anymore and getting the comments from them and then as we were doing that all of a sudden the masters was postponed so it was just one drop after another and you had to try and keep up and try and get comments from all of these players about uh about what was going on and and it, i think now it's sort of at the point where no one's really thinking they're going to play golf anytime soon and, and probably for the right reasons as well. The uh, guys that you spoke to who are on the, who made the team, you're talking about Corey Connors and Adam Hadwin, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. And Elena Sharp and Brooke Henderson as well. Right. The so the women's side, side too. Are they, uh, are they still practicing wherever they're based out of right now? Or are they just kind of chilling and waiting like everyone else? Yeah. Everyone's just kind of, I mean, you know, they're Corey Connors. I spoke to just before you and I went on the, uh, on this call and, uh, he said that he's hit balls a couple of times at his range. He played one round of golf uh, basically by himself. Um, his club is like a lot of clubs that are still open. You know, there's no service. There's no, uh, no carts. You don't you kind of walk, carry your own bag. You don't yeah. there's no bunker rakes, all those kind of precautions that I think we know about. Um, 
and he's hit a balls a little bit, but I don't think he's really grinding like he would normally. I think these guys realize that, um, you know, it's going to be a while before they get back up and playing. I mean, right now the earliest they would play would be um, first week in May with the colonial. And I, and I think that's very optimistic at this point. So um, now it's just sort of a waiting game. And, and obviously you have to try and keep your game in some kind of shape. And a lot of these guys have either indoor hitting rains, uh, you know, nets or simulators or, uh, places where they can hit balls and, and not have any problems with social distancing. So um, I think they can ramp it up pretty good, but obviously you don't want to just throw the clubs in the garage and, and close it and sit in front of uh, Netflix and, and eat popcorn for the, for the next three months. Basically what I've done this week, if I'm not giving online lessons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I guess what I've been doing too. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's been doing the same thing, to be honest. It's kind of funny because the only guys who haven't slowed down their grinding for me are the mini tour players. All the guys who are playing on like the, I guess the smaller PGA Tour sanctioned events like the Latin America, McKenzie, China and all that. Those guys right. and the guys playing, I guess, on the minor league golf tour or whatever is, that's still going on right now. Uh, those guys have been grinding like every day. It's crazy how many videos I'm still getting from these players. And all the guys higher up like the Stephen Ames and the Dylan Wu and all these guys on the, on the main circuits that, I, that I'm working with, they're all kind of just taking it easy and taking a step back. Yeah, I saw I saw a nice little uh, Instagram post from Stephen Ames' wife up there with him walking along on the beach with a couple of dogs, and uh, I thought that's uh, if you were going to have to self isolate, that's probably not a bad place to do it on the beach of Turks and Caicos. But, <laughs> he just, uh, yeah, he just told me that they called their dogs Bogey and Birdie. I said, I hope you like one more than the other. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's a good character, Stephen. I've known him for a long time. Yeah, Steve's the best. I was, uh, I, you know, I was doing some research on, on kind of like your history before the pod just to have some things to, to talk about. And the first thing that I was amazed to see, I, did, I had no idea that you were from Montreal or you were raised in Montreal yep. a little bit as a kid. Yeah, I grew up there. I was born in Montreal and, and lived there till I was 12. And uh, we lived in the town of Mount Royal. And my mother's family was from there for a long time. And my dad's family had moved there. Uh, after my grandfather retired. So uh, I spent the first 12 years of my life there. I didn't ever actually ever play any golf when I was in, in Montreal. That came a little bit later, um, but it was, uh, it's still home. It's still the place where I was born. And uh, every once in a while, you know, with, with uh, technology, I go on, on Google streets and Google maps and I, uh, I look up the house where I grew up in just to see what it looks like these days. So uh, still a special place. That's so funny. When, uh, when was the last time you've been back in Montreal? Has it been like years? Uh, no, I've been back on business a couple times, probably in the last, yeah, maybe the last year or so, year and a half or so. But uh, I, I get back, I would say, usually once a year. Um, and uh, sometimes I just go for fun. And I don't really have any, any friends or relatives still who live there, other than you, obviously. Right. <laughs> my, my, yeah, yeah. My friend. But, uh, but uh, no friends from sort of when I was back there. That's a long time ago now. Wow. So did you, um, did you play any other sports growing up? Cause you just mentioned that you weren't playing golf as a kid. Yeah, I played, uh, I played, uh, hockey. Uh, we had a nice arena there and I played a little bit of baseball, um, growing up, nothing extraordinary, just like house league stuff. And like a re every other regular kid, I was lucky that the Tanamount Royal at that point, uh, and this is, we're talking like the 1960s here, cause I'm an old guy, uh, had a really uh, remarkable. And at that point, um, I wouldn't say state of the art, but certainly a brand spanking new recreation facility complex. We had a beautiful uh, hockey arena, which I'm sure is probably still there and probably old now. And uh, we had a nice sort of recreation center with, with tennis courts and baseball fields and a football. And there was a big uh, track around the high school that was there. Um, I've never driven by it lately, so I don't know what's there. I'm sure one of your listeners can probably tell me and let me know what's going on, but it's uh, it was a good place to grow up. It was a fun, fun area. And, um, and there was lots of sports and, uh, and I went, I uh, was a big Montreal Canadiens fan. And back in those days, you know, like they won the Stanley cup every year, it seemed like. So it was a sort of almost toe hum after a while, but, and then um, the Expos came to town and uh, that was another big one. So uh, there was lots of, lots of sports growing up in, in my family. Sweet dude. So the, what, so when you moved out of Montreal, did you go straight to Toronto after that? We did. Yeah. Uh, we moved to Toronto where I've made my home since. Um, I actually have a, a lot of family in Prince Edward Island. That's where my heritage is, my grandparents and going on way back about three more generations. So I go out there quite a bit. I do have some family out there. Um, but we moved to Toronto and I've made my home here and I started actually playing golf. We were in a summer trip to uh, Prince Edward Island and my dad took me out to a little par three course called Strathgartney, which is I'm, I understand is still there. 
and we played our first round of golf and uh and it kind of went from there and I never really I never really was a great golfer by any means. I, we joined a club in Toronto here. I swear I'm still a member, Western Golf Club. And um, we, uh, I, I played there as a junior and then into intermediate, and, and I'm still a member there. It's a um, nice golf course. But I was, never, I was never a great golfer. I get asked that question a lot. You know, well, you must have been an awesome golfer. And I said, no, no, I'm sort of a, you know, I think I, my handicap down to about seven or eight at one point is probably about the lowest it's been. It varies now between sort of 11 and 14, depending on how I'm playing and how much travel I'm doing. Um, but, uh, but I was more a journalist than a golfer. I'm just a person who covers golf as, a, as opposed to a player who, who plays golf and, and talks about it afterwards. I would imagine that you tend to get a handful of colleagues every now and again, who are like ex players, which is why I would assume people make that kind of distinction where You know, there's there's like Trevor Immelman, let's say, who joins the analyst group. All of a sudden, people are going to start thinking that everyone on that panel happens to be pro golfers or ex-pros, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends like that who are, as you say, who are like that. I think mean, Jerry Foltz is a good buddy of mine from, from Golf Channel. and uh, and uh, But, you know, I'm more like a guy like Todd Lewis, who uh, who is also a good friend of mine from Golf Channel, who is um, is a good golfer, but he's not a, not a professional golfer by any means. He's a journalist, so... And I think there's a there's a good cadre of, of very good players who are journalists first, and some guys who, who can really play it. A guy named John McCarthy from the Toronto Sun who does a lot of work. Uh, he's uh, he's a good player. Adam Stanley lives up in the Ottawa area. He's a very good player as well. So, um, but uh, but I work on my, uh, my my main craft is writing and, and broadcasting first, and then the golf comes after. I wanted to ask, how did you how did you fall into um, I guess journalism and then journalism with regards to sports? Did you study that in university? <laughs> I did. I actually, my summer job, I forgot to mention this, my summer job growing up, I worked at a golf course. I worked at a public facility in Toronto, a municipal golf course called Scarlet Woods. And then I went away to university in, to, in Windsor and I took journalism or communications as they called it there. And uh, when I came back, the first job I had actually after graduating was, believe it or not, I gave out the big winning checks at the uh, Lottery Corporation. <laughs> I would interview wow. the people. So you're, give them were you one of those guys holding the huge checks? Yeah, exactly. We would get to, get the big checks out there and Our, my job was to it wasn't so much the very very big winners, but but the sort of uh, big just big winners. And basically, you know, the the public wanted to know that their people were winning these lotteries. So my job was the couple that came from let's say came from down from Sudbury to get their prize, and I would phone the newspapers and the TV stations in Sudbury and get them on the air or get them connected with the reporters just so they would prove that there were winners. So that was a pretty good job. <laughs> But I, my passion was really writing back then. And so I submitted some story ideas to score golf magazine. And uh, that was back in 1987. And uh, they hired me. Uh, I worked sort of as a freelance writer for a little while. And then I got hired and uh, I stayed there for about 30 years. So it was before I made the move full time to TSN. I'd been working with TSN while I was still at score, but Um, but yeah, I was a journalism guy who just sort of found was really, my career has really just been about being at the right place at the right time, to be honest with you. And, uh, and then working hard once you get the opportunity. I'll tell you what, if anybody understands that it's me, because I was not someone who grew up playing golf necessarily like every year or was a member at any club. So kind of similar stuff. I actually played competitive soccer growing up or I guess European football for the listeners <laughs> across the pond. But, <laughs> but um, You know, I kind of dealt with some injuries and then tried to take golf more seriously when I was younger. And then that obviously was not happening professionally. And then I kind of just fell into an opportunity. Same thing, similar. And my career took off same way. So it's so funny when you hear stories like that, because you're like, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who grew up with like this idol of like saying, oh, I absolutely wanted to be a golf coach when I was a kid. Like I had no idea, you know. <laughs> right. I always tell people that, you know, I, I get a lot of younger people who come up to me and want to and I meet with them and they say, you know, they want to be a golf writer or they want to be a golf broadcaster. And I say, well, you know, I don't consider myself a golf writer or a golf broadcaster. I am a, a journalist who happens to cover golf. And I like to think that the skills I have could translate into covering whether it's entertainment or politics or business, you know, you, you right. that's the foundation of what I do. So uh, I'm just very lucky that it happens to be golf. So I guess that kind of falls up to my, my next question. Have you noticed a shift as you've been getting older, just into more of like a mentorship role with people? Do a lot of more people come up to you now and ask like for help of saying, look, I saw you on TV. You're doing such a good job. Is there any kind of advice you can give me? Yeah, I do get, I do get that from time to time from young people. And I'm always happy to share. And uh, I guess it's been a weird transition because I still, I still consider myself young, but now I know that I'm not. So it's uh Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, you've been around a while and, and I always like to help people out and there's some, uh, 
some younger guys on the circuit uh, who cover. There's not too many people who go, go and cover majors or, or U.S. golf tournaments, but the, the ones that do, you know, you always try to help a, help provide a helping hand. And maybe it's it's more, a lot of cases, it's now about um, putting things in frames of reference. Like they might say, well, when was the last time, you know, we had four Canadians at the Masters or something like that. And, and I guess just having been around long enough, um, uh, that's happened. But, you know, that happened to me, too. I was very lucky to, to have guys like Lauren Rubenstein and then Cam Cole from Vancouver. And those guys sort of take me under their arm and show me the ropes. And so it's it's sort of a natural progression. I feel that it's my my responsibility to do that with uh, whoever I can. And I generally meet with – I try to meet either on the phone or in person with, with anyone who wants to ask questions about that kind of stuff. How um... – how much different, I guess you're kind of more prepared for this virus situation now than ever, but like how much different has you noticed as a shift in your journalism going more digital? Have you noticed it being uh, way more online now than it ever was? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's almost kind of like what your business is doing. You know, I have a little setup in my office here with a sort of a camera. It's, it's actually my phone, but a tripod and a light and microphones and different gadgets to kind of hook them up all together. And, mm -hmm. um, And then we, we do a radio show here uh, as well, Golf Talk Canada. And we've just found a new app that can let us broadcast as if we were, sounds like we were in the studio. Um, so there's definitely a shift toward digital. And, and the one thing that, that this will do is in certain cases, not that we weren't using it before, but now we've proven a lot of different ways to do things remotely. So if I'm at a golf tournament now, I don't have to just phone into the radio station. I can use this app and my microphone and it sounds a lot better or, Um, you know, I was starting at the, even at the player championship, I was using my iPhone to, to record interviews and, um, and, uh, and, and do things that way. So, you know, we didn't have a cameraman there for the first time at a, at a big tournament like that. So I can see these things maybe being the way of the future for, for certain events. I don't think you'd see it at a big event like the masters or something, but you know, it, it makes business a little more, um, financially, uh, vi viable in certain cases. So, uh, technology has certainly, um, sped up that process. And, um, you know, if you look now, you watch golf channel, you see they're all recording from their homes. So it's, it's the way of the industry right now. It's funny because people always think I have this like high tech setup going on for my online lessons. And if you saw mine, it's kind of similar to you. It's just like a phone on, on a mini ledge that we attach to the wall <laughs> that, right. just, that just broadcasts <laughs> with good light. And we have microphones attached to the cell phone through an app, kind of similar to what you're doing. And it just allows us to yeah. talk clearly into the phone. But I mean, it's no different. It's just like a kind of makeshift way of going about it, but it works and it's super successful. So why not keep doing it? Uh, yeah. And I, and I think in a lot of cases now, people are willing to accept a little lower quality to get the content. And, and your situation is a perfect example of that. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a 4K HD broadcast of every single thing. You want it for certain things, obviously, like the Masters, let's say. Um, yeah. But if you're just doing, just if it's just me or you doing a, a report or something or a, or a lesson, you know, I think people are, are understanding of it and accepting of that more. Yeah, I think there's kind of like a fine line where obviously you wanted to have some good visuals and you want to be able to hear the person clearly. I've seen some videos, unfortunately, on the internet where like people are producing, even for golf instruction, like some of the best content I've seen out there in terms of just an understanding from like a biomechanics perspective of what's going on. But the, the quality of like the audio is so bad and there's wind in the background that it just makes the video kind of hard to watch. And then it deters right. you from even being able to pay attention from what he's actually saying. He or she, obviously. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's obviously a bottom line. You have, to, you have yeah. to be able to see the person and know what you're talking about and hear it, especially with yours, which is a, obviously a... Super uh, scientific. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a little more interesting because you got to actually get to what you're doing. So it'll be, uh, it'll be you know, there's, there's a barrier there for sure. So when, at what point did you join TSN full-time as a member of uh, where you kind of like pushed other side businesses aside? Yeah. So I, I worked with score golf and TSN in kind of a barter arrangement they had for about 12 to 15 years, I guess. And then TSN came to me and said, we'd like to hire you full-time because we believe golf is, is an area that we can grow in. And, and I sort of said, I was ready to kind of pack up the the writing per se or the magazine work. And I'm looking for a new challenge to kind of the second part of my career. So about five years ago, I went over and, um, and uh, that that's kind of when I made the switch over full time. I'm very glad I did. It was nothing against score golf. I had a great career there, a great time there. And the people there I'm still very connected with, uh, but it was time for a change. And, uh, and TSN has provided me with lots of opportunities to, to kind of grow. And um, you know, they, it's, it's one of the few sports golf is one of the few sports where TSN, 
really is the dominant force like our competitors at Sportsnet who do great work um, but they don't really have a footprint in golf like we do so that that allowed me a lot of opportunities and a lot of different options as well did TSN always have that strong of a footprint in golf or has that been growing since you joined it um, it's, it's sort of a mutual thing. I mean, they have, they had the rights to all four majors for a little while. So that, that was kind of a key platform and yeah, had, that helps for sure. Uh, yeah. And before, just before, um, golf channel came in, they used to broadcast the Thursday and Friday rounds as well, which is always good content, uh, for the PGA tour. And we do have a small PGA tour package now about uh, eight or 10 events on Saturday and Sundays. Um, but yeah, they've, they've had, always had a pretty good legacy with golf. I mean, back, you go back, 12 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, we had five live golf tournaments that we broadcast every year. We do the, the men's open, the women's open, the champions tour. We do the skins game. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of live broadcasting and that's, that's a lot of fun to do. We don't do much of that anymore. It's, it's very difficult to do obviously and very, very costly. Yeah. And the rights packages now prevent us from doing that. But, uh, but that was fun back in the day. So certainly we've, we've always had a pretty good, uh, pretty good footprint with golf. I would imagine that obviously the two biggest events you guys are covering every year is the Canadian Open and the Masters. Yeah, for sure. Those two. I mean, every once in a while you get something different. I was lucky enough to be out in Regina a couple of years ago for Brooke Henderson winning uh, the CP Women's Open at home, which was, uh, you know, I've had maybe two or three kind of ridiculously sort of the highlight moments of my career, I would say. And that was one of them. Uh, Stephen Ames winning the Players would be one. And then, of course, Mike Weir winning the Masters. I was lucky to be at all three of those. And um, every once in a while, you know, you get you get a a moment like that, which is a uh, something that it's it's kind of goes beyond sports. They they kind of transcend the actual, um, you know, the actual week in and week out golf reporting. It's it's something that's bigger. It's a Canadian winning, and it's a big story. So uh, those moments are always great. They're always really crazy and very busy and hard to do, uh, but but a very satisfying to see them win. I guess as a follow-up to that, how how iconic was which was the most iconic win that you've experienced? I would imagine we were at the Masters was huge. Yeah, Mike Mike at the Masters was was amazing. Mike's career and my career have kind of a timeline that's kind of very similar. So um, I've known Mike since he was an amateur golfer, and uh, you know he came up and um, and you you could just sense how good a player he was at that point. He was really one of the top players, but still you you, you kind of came came down on that Sunday. I don't know why this was. I was Rod Black and I were the, uh, were the two hosts on, on TSM at that point. And Paul Coffey, the hockey player, great hockey player for Edmonton Oilers happened to be there. And the three of us walked around together. And traditionally what I do at the masters is on Sunday, I'll walk the front nine generally with the leaders. And then I'll have to go back and watch the rest of it in the, in the TV compound because you just have to be ready to go on air as soon as it's over. And so, but for some reason that day, we just decided, you know what, we're walking, walking this right through all the way to the end. And, uh, and that putt on 18 to get into the playoff was probably the most nerve wracking moment. And then you just knew on the, on the playoff hole, he, uh, he was going to win it. And it was just a, uh, just a weird sensation where you're trying to make sure you're still a journalist and you're being <laughs> objective, but there's just no way you can, because I've known this guy for 20 years or whatever. And now you're, you're making sure you're not sort of becoming the cheerleader, but telling the story as well. So, uh, it was a great moment. And after everything was over, we did go back with, with Mike and celebrate and, uh, um, and then, uh, you know, it's just one of those, one of those times where you, you kind of every, every Canadian pretty much knows where they were when it happened. So I would imagine that that's the victory that kind of set the tone for all the other subsequent victories that came after that, because that was the first time that a Canadian had won any sort of major championship to that extent. Right. So, I mean, I would imagine that Steven almost had to have felt some level of confidence added to him, even at the players as a result of Mike's victory. I think so. Um, you know, if you look, if you look at the the wave of players now, Adam Hadwin, Mackenzie Hughes, uh, Graham Bellad, and Nick Taylor, and all those guys, that that's the kind of guys who are inspired by what Mike did. They'll tell you, you know, they all remember where they were. They were all young young people, but um, you know, they're the ones who were sort of who who kind of got the confidence from that. Stephen did too. Stephen, you know, Stephen's win at the Players to me is still, and I've said this many times, is still the best display of ball striking I've ever seen. The eighteen, the the, the final eighteen holes. I have never seen a player control his golf ball like I saw Steven that day. Every shot right from, you know, tee shots to putts. And and when you look at the field that he beat by six shots, um, I mean, it's stunning. And and I know you know Steven very well. And so, you know, he tries to play with a very clear head. That's, to, to me, a lot of cases when he doesn't have a good day, it's, it's, it's obviously swing related to a certain extent, but it's also because his head gets in the way. And he said that day was just, you know, 
nothing. It was just so easy to, to, to play the game and, and think about basically nothing. And, and, and it showed, obviously, it's, uh, it's an amazing performance that probably doesn't get enough credit for, for what happened that day. I'll tell you what, I've, I've worked with a lot of tour players. I've had the fortune of working with some really, really good players. I still have never seen anybody when they're on their game control the ball, even at this age now, as Steven does. And I think it's kind of, it's kind of like, it's almost a joke. Like we were working on some bunker stuff um, out in September in Detroit. And my brother was with me too. And it was like the first time he had seen any level of like professional golf, like in front of him. And me and Steven yeah. are working on some stuff and we're working on like some minor grip related things, uh, which I think you even covered at some point uh, back then. And he's hitting shots in the bunker and he's starting to get more comfortable with like how he's releasing the club, let's say. And then he looks at me, he's like, when I start getting more comfortable with things, I can start playing different shots for fun because I feel confident to pull them off. And I'm telling you, Bob, he hit probably 25 bunker shots from 40 yards away, keeping the ball flight super low, almost like a stinger out of the bunker stopping with crazy spin to like two feet, 25 shots in a row. Probably he didn't get anything outside of five feet the whole time from 40 yards, which is arguably like the hardest (laughs) shot you can imagine. And I'm just standing there going, trust me, I worked with a lot of tour players. I have never seen anybody pull off that level of consistency on that shot that difficult. Like it was mind boggling. It's, it's amazing how good he is. And I think, I think sometimes, um, you know, there's, I've been on the range when other pros have come by and stopped to watch him swing. I remember Fred couples coming by and watching swing and just, marveling at how how graceful and how you know easy his swing is when it's on and uh and it's as i say you know he if if it wasn't for the fact that he came up at the same time as mike he'd probably get a lot more recognition but he's he's been rightly uh named the canadian golf hall of fame and he's uh he's a good man when you get to know him i i I know you do so but uh he's just i I have a lot of time for steven i would imagine that's that's kind of what i was going to mention too is like do you i would i guess steven does never gets enough credit because of how great career mike had and the fact that he won the masters yeah i mean it's it's almost a little bit like tiger woods and phil nicholson you know you're kind of you're you're a great player but you're in the shadow of a, of a guy who's done even greater things so um you know there's there's been some great golfers in this in this country over the years whether it's george newton or sandra post or uh, Al Balding or people like that, but I think Stephen Ames should de- deserves a spot right up there. He's uh, he's been a tremendous player, and and I'll tell you something else. I get really upset when people and they still do this day say, "Oh, he's not a Canadian," and I said, "Man, you know anybody who takes a citizenship in this country, um, that means is they want to be a Canadian. Canadian." Yeah, yeah, exactly. I th- it's a weird bond that us Canadians have that I think you don't experience anywhere else. Where it's like it doesn't matter if you're born somewhere else or if you're born in Canada. Like if you come here and you become a Canadian citizen, like you are a Canadian. And I don't really think Canadians treat them any differently, which I obviously would imagine is very different somewhere else. You know, like somebody goes to the States and moves there to the U.S. and becomes a U.S. citizen. They're always going to kind of have that on the back a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's just, it's a shame that certain things like that happen. But Stephen is proud Canadian, um, you know, got the Canadian flag on his bag and he's uh, he's a smart guy. And I think uh, I think you know, uh, the world of him. He's, he's done a lot for golf in this country as well with helping junior golf out and, and doing different things. He had the Stephen Ames cup for many years. So uh, he's given back as well as, uh, as being um, a recipient of all the love he gets here. For sure. So let's go to the women's side then. How big was, uh, was Brooks victory at uh, the Canadian open? I imagine that was like massive for junior golf or for women in general. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it really was amazing when, when you, think about a Canadian winning at home. You know, I was luck, lucky enough to see Mike Weir win the Air Canada Championship, which was another great moment. But when you get a Canadian winning at home in a field that is as deep as that, I always thought that Brooke might be able to do it. And, uh, I mean, she is such an amazing talent and uh, such a driven person, mentally very, very, very strong, that when she kind of got going that year, uh, you could kind of sense, like when she woke up on the Sunday and you got to the first tee, you could see those kind of, as, as Lori Kane likes to call her, says, those are, those are your goalie eyes from when Brooke used to play as a goalie. She was, I mean, she was dialed in. She didn't look nervous. Um, and, and you could, and it was, it was freezing cold. First of all, I think it was about six degrees when they teed off or something. And, uh, and then you could just see, she wasn't going to be denied as she, you know, there was a, another competitor, Angel Yin was sort of making some birdies, but every time Brooke would respond, and that's what I love about Brooke. She is so determined and so um, so feisty, I guess, with her golf game. And she can produce shots under the gun. She loves the pressure situation. I don't know if you remember the PGA Championship she won where she was in a playoff with Lydia Ko uh, and hit, a, hit her shot in the playoff hole to about two feet. 
Yeah, so, I do actually. She had a gap wedge in her hands, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was a big moment. And it was it was kind of a cool moment to be there with uh, in in uh, Regina. And and the one thing that stands out about that was that the there was no television broadcast of that event in Canada. There was going to be a tape delayed broadcast on the Golf Channel later, and you had this historic moment about to develop. And the the powers that be at TSN, Golf Channel, and the LPGA Tour, and and Golf Canada all got together Saturday. And realized, like you know, you, you can't do that. You have to give these guys. And even though TSN really didn't have the rights to it, the Golf Channel worked out an agreement, realizing the situation, and allowed them to broadcast at least the last nine holes. So the first nine holes, I was tweeting out what was happening, and and I think my Twitter followers went up by about five thousand because so many people <laughs> were trying to figure out what was happening. But um, I'll always remember the last shot coming into eighteen. Well, not the last shot, but the last iron shot coming in, or second shot on the eighteenth hole. The entire hole was ringed around. It was just uh, probably five or six deep, and it was so quiet. And then a flock of Canada geese flew over, <laughs> over top and honked. And then uh, Brooke hit her shot to about five feet, and uh, and that was uh, set up quite the celebration. That's absolutely wild. That's uh, that's a, that's a cool story, and I would imagine that's not something you're going to forget ever at any point in time, especially as a Canadian. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So I guess follow up to that then. Um, what's so different about covering the masters i guess from a first of all i would love to know what your week is like when you get there because i would imagine that it's way more hectic than your average tour event that you're covering um you know interviews all over the place constant analysis of players coming in and the canadians and how they're performing in the days prior and i would love to know like how much busier does the masters get what are your how hectic is that week um, well, it's the busiest week of the year for sure. It's the biggest production golf production that we do. And I think, you know, the fact that it sort of coincides with the kickoff of the golf season in Canada, in most parts of Canada, um, is a big part of it. We go down with a crew of about 11 and the other majors will, it'll, it'll probably be three or four people that we go down with. So we have our own set there. We, we broadcast the, we basically take the, 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 the live streams that, uh, Augusta national offers and we put those on three or four of the channels. So James Duffy, myself, and uh, we have a, uh, we usually have an analyst the last couple of years. It's been David Hearn and um, we just kind of bounce back and forth. And then we do stuff in a sports center. A lot of times I kind of get pulled off that set and I go up behind the clubhouse to interview, um, interview Canadian players who are coming off the golf course, get their feelings on the, on the, on the day and how they were, how they were doing. It's long days. We, we get there, we fly in on the Sunday before the tournament starts. Um, I would say on average, we're working between 10 and 12 hours a day. And then you kind of go home and eat, fall asleep <laughs> and, and get up and do it all over again the next day. It's fun week. It's a long week, but it's a fun week. And um, we rent a house there because Augusta, for those who don't know, Augusta is basically a small town. There's about 250,000 people there. So there's not enough hotels to, to keep everybody there. And you get, I don't know what it is, 30 or 40,000 people that come into town yeah. all of a sudden descend on this town. So we rent a house, as most people do down there, and uh, and we stay there. And so it's uh, kind of a big bonding week, too, a lot of fun with uh, with all the, the crew who are all good people and work hard. Um, but it's uh, it's it's the most satisfying week of the year for sure because I think it's it proves that TSN really can – you know, we, we're, we're in a TV compound with all the international broadcasters, whether it's Sweden or South Africa or England or – japan and and you kind of see what what we do and what they do and it's it's all pretty good um well what was the when was the first time you went to the masters was it as you were working for tsn or had you ever been there before that uh i was working for score golf at the first time i went it was 1993 and uh, richard zokel had qualified that year so they they decided that it would be good to send someone down to cover zoke and um this year would have been my 25th Masters. It may still be whenever it comes off, whatever the next one is, it'll be my 25th Masters. And so the question that uh, everyone seems to ask after is, uh, yes, I did get to finally play the golf course um, in 2014. I, they have a media draw. You can get, you can play on the Monday morning after. And uh, I put my name in the hat 19 times before I actually got pulled out and, and got wow. to play, but it was, worth, it was, it was worth the wait. I can tell you that. And, uh, it's a fun experience. They treat you really well. And, and even as many times as I had been there, you know, when you're playing and walking between the ropes, well, there's no ropes because they've taken them all down by that time. But yeah. um, when you're walking on the golf course and, and to walk on those greens, it's just mind boggling. And if I didn't have a local caddy, I mean, I never would have survived. I don't think because they, they just teach you so much. And a funny story, the caddy that I had that day, he, um, we were walking off the first tee and he said, the, 
Mr. Weeks, he says, I'd like to make you a bet. And I said, okay, what's that? He says, for every weed you find today, I'll give you $100. And I said, okay. And then he said, but if you don't find any weeds at all at the end of the round, you owe me 1000 So I'm starting to walk down and I'm looking around and I'm going, no bet. There's, there's no weeds here. Absolutely nothing. So it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty amazing place. And until you get on those greens and putt them, you can't believe how much break there is in them. It's just, it's, you know, if the caddy's the one who tell you, he'll, he'll line you up like two feet more than you're, than you think it's going to break. And there's always a couple of wow experiences when you get out there on those greens. It's, it's just some, I don't know how the guys managed it to be perfectly honest. So I have two questions. First of all, what did you do on 12? I hope you got it somewhat <laughs> near the green. <laughs> I hit it in the, uh, in the front bunker and I uh, blasted out and two putted for a bogey. <laughs> Honestly, that's not a bad score at all. <laughs> that's not. Second of all, how nervous were you on the first drive? Yeah, the first drive, there, were, uh, there weren't, weren't a lot of legs <laughs> working in that first shot. I was so nervous. We were, the, I think, the third group teeing off that day, so we were off pretty early. We actually got onto the range. It was still dark. Uh, but it's, uh, it was, a, uh, it was a, uh, uh, quite an experience to hit that first tee shot. And once we got going after that, I was okay. My caddy was pretty good. He was, uh, he'd been there for many years. He'd caddied for a couple of presidents. And he just said, you know, you just got to have fun here and enjoy it. And, uh, and after that, I kind of calmed down a little bit. But, yeah, there was, there was definitely some nerves on the first tee. Um, I guess a follow-up question, how steep, because I know that a lot of people from TV can't actually tell, how steep is that hill going down to on your second or third shot? Two is two is really steep. Uh, the one down 10 might be steeper. <clears throat> the, um, the high point of the golf course, the caddy told me that day, was the back right of the first green. And the okay. low point is, is right in front of the creek on 12, basically where the drop area is on 12. Yeah. And I think, he said it's, I think he said it's 165 feet. I might have that off, but it's right around there. Uh, but two is, yeah, two is a big steep hill. And when you get the ball, you know, they've moved that tee back now. So it's, if you can get the ball over the hill and get it down, moving a bit, it, it helps. Um, but on 10, it's, uh, 10 is like a black diamond ski run. <laughs> and it's, uh, wow, it's that really, steep, uh, eh? it, yeah, it really goes down. That's the one thing when people tell me they're going to the masters for the first time, I always say, okay, I want you to remember your first impression and tell me when, when you see me next. And almost invariably it's always, wow, I did not, could not believe how hilly it is. Uh, it's a, it's a good workout. If you're a caddy, I can tell you, you're, you're glad when you, when you see the end of that week, cause it's a lot of humping around. Okay, so then here's, a, here's one last follow-up. What were you more nervous for, the first shot at the Masters or the first time you were ever on television? <laughs> That's a good one. I think the first time, probably, probably they, they were probably both comparable. I can't remember the first time I was on television. I remember the first time I was on television from the Masters, which was, uh, I think, 95. I went down there and TSN got me to, to do a hit. That was pretty nerve-wracking. Um, but, uh, but now, now I'm probably, I probably get a little more nervous when I'm playing golf than I do when I'm on TV. I'm not too nervous about being on TV anymore, but, uh, but every once in a while you get the jitters at a, at a golf tournament only because I just don't want to mess up or, or hit somebody <laughs> off the first tee. No the first, kidding. You know, the first, the first day I actually worked for score golf magazine was 1987 and I was caddying in the Canadian open pro-am. The score golf guys had a group and our pro was Jack Nicholas. And we went out on the first hole and they were lined up six deep all the way down the first hole. And the guy I was caddying for was the publisher. And I gave him a ball and I just said, good luck. Don't hit anybody. And I think I was more nervous just being the caddy there watching uh, and hit a, and then, and, hit a shot. But, and that's the year after Jack won the Masters. <laughs> exactly. He was still a big name. He was still a big, big name, even though he was a little bit older in his career. But you're right. <laughs> Wow, that's really funny. Do you um do you remember the first time you ever made a blunder on TV, or like something just happened where you were just like, "Fuck, I probably shouldn't have either said that," or I messed up a line and you were nervous about it and remember after? Uh, yeah. So we were broadcasting the uh, the Air Canada Championship back in the day, the Vancouver PGA Tour stop, and um, I was out on the golf course. I was actually a walker because they were short a couple of people, so I I pitched in. And I was covering Mike Weir. This is in the Thursday or Friday before he was in the hunt to win. He shot 64-64 on the weekend. So um, he wasn't quite the, the fit betting favorite quite at that point. But I remember they, Rod Black threw it down to me and said, uh, Bob, what's, what's Mike Weir got here? And I said, uh, he's got 147 yards. He's got an eight iron in his hand. And he's got a little wind coming from his rear. <laughs> so the, uh, that wasn't quite the, from his where <laughs> so, oh, that's anyway. so funny 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, a few fluffs like that, but uh, generally speaking, I haven't been too bad on TV. Uh, live television always, though. There's no, there's no second chances on live television. So uh, thank goodness most of my stuff is taped. When something like that happens, does everybody just immediately laugh as soon as you get off the air? It's usually yeah, right in the commercial break, they all start howling and uh, and you realize what you've done. And then and then for for years afterwards, they would they would always have that clip saved, and they would play it they would play it in my ear on certain times. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's such a Canadian like hockey thing to do, like to chirp someone about a mistake like a year later. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's so funny. Well, dude, I was researching you and I think you are the first person I've ever seen as far as my knowledge goes, that's been inducted into a golf hall of fame and a curling hall of fame. And I definitely need to ask how that happened. <laughs> well, that was the other sport. Uh, I actually, I actually was pretty good at as curling, not great, but I was a pretty good curler back in the day. My, my parents curled. And so I grew up playing golf in the summer and, and curling in the winter at the at Western golf club. You do realize and how Canadian that, of an answer that is, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, uh, but I, I found, uh, you know, I, I went on the competitive circuit for a little bit and, uh, but I found afterwards that, that probably writing about curling was going to be a little bit easier than, than, uh, than playing it. So, uh, I had a column in the Globe and Mail on curling for 25 years. I've written four books on curling, including curling for dummies, the actual dummy series books. And I wrote a history about the briar. So I got in as a builder more than that. That's why I always like to remind people when I'm on the first tee, they say, well, you're in the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. And I say, yeah, but it's, it's as a builder. Don't, don't forget that. So I was lucky enough to get inducted as a builder into the, into the Curling Hall of Fame as well. I haven't, I haven't done much curling lately, but a little bit on TSN uh, the last couple of years. So it's always nice to, always nice to do some of that. What's the, uh, I would love to try curling. I've never done it. I've seen obviously how difficult it could be. I would imagine it's, it's as difficult as golf in the precision that's required. Um, it's yeah, I would say uh, it's a little easier to get kind of the basics down. You, you can, you can learn how to curl kind of in a day and be, and play a game. Uh, but to be good, if you want to be in the Olympic athlete, it's just like, it's just like, uh, it's just like golf. In fact, there's a lot of similarities in terms of, of, um, how they teach it and, and how they, the technology that's come into that. There's actually a, a guy named John Epping. He's a, uh, he's a very good curler, world-class curler who um, I actually passed on your information about how you teach to him because he's a curling teacher. And now he's starting to do some, some remote teaching. So it's uh it's pretty interesting how uh, two sports do kind of coincide a little bit. How, if someone even wants to get into curling, where's, where's the first place they should try to look? Because I can't imagine that people even have access to that kind of information without like searching on Google of saying like, you know, it's not a sport that you can just call someone and be like, Hey, I, I want to try curling and I want to get into it because there are so few people, I guess that do it every day as a hobby. Yeah. I mean, you can get, you can go to most curling clubs will have sort of learn to curl programs, which is probably the best way to start. So, you know, there's, there's enough curling clubs in Montreal in the area around there or anywhere across Canada or even in the United States. Now there's lots of curling clubs, you know, growing ever since it's become an Olympic sport and I would say if you get into the early part of the season, so, you know, you're looking sort of late August, early September, uh, maybe just post Labor Day, that's when most of the curling clubs start to think about opening. And there's some basics there, uh, learn to curl programs, and they have some, you know, some pretty decent teachers who can get you started with the basics. And then if you want to progress, there's there's uh, uh, places online where you can go and, and get real detailed lessons from, from some of the professionals. That's something that ne they never used to have, by the way. There was never really curling professionals per se. But that's something that's expanded now, with uh, especially since golf or curling got in the Olympics back in 1998. I actually didn't know that they only got in 20, I guess, 22 years ago. Yeah, that's right, and it's it's amazing how fast the international countries. Canada used to just you know be so dominant, uh, but now you're seeing countries like China and the and the U.S., which was is a big curling, but was never really a great curling nation. Um, so there's some there's a lot of. Uh, um, countries around the world and in, in uh, Europe and in Asia that are really staking their uh, really building up their, their Olympic programs. So uh, it's become a very competitive sport, much, much the same way as we see with, with golf. You know, you're seeing some of the countries that weren't traditional golf countries now pouring a little bit more money into their programs because, um, because of the fact that the, uh, the Olympics is, is there and golf's in the Olympics. I was going to say, what do you, what do you think about that with Canada? Obviously there's, I mean, we kind of mentioned it, that there's more Canadian golfers coming up now, but uh, do you force, do you foresee a little bit more competition from the Canadian side with regards to the PGA tour? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the PGA tour, we've got a lot of good young players coming up. Um, 
you know, you look at the depth, and, and I know you probably know this as well as anybody. You see some players on the McKenzie Tour and on Corn Ferry Tour, some good young Canadian players. Where I haven't seen the growth really is on the women's side. You know, there's only two Canadians on the LPGA Tour right now, Elena Sharp and Brooke Henderson. And Elena Sharp is uh, is probably one of the older players out there, you know, uh, on, on the LPGA Tour now. She's still very competitive, but um, I'd like to see more top-level growing there. There are some good players like a Brittany Marchand and, and people like that, but I'd love to see them get just a little bit better and, and get themselves into a regular competition on the LPGA Tour. That would be nice. Yeah, I would imagine you know all the all the Canadian coaches already, Tristan Mullally and and uh, Matt Wilson and all that. Yeah, and Derek Ingram, and you know they they work hard with them. Tristan Mullally does a great job in trying to build up the uh, the younger Canadian women, and I think he's doing a great job. And I think a lot of it's just confidence, confidence and, and opportunity, um, and, and getting out there. It's it's not easy whether you're a male or a female to, to try and get into the competitive area, but. Um, and get to the to the top ranks of the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour. But, uh, you know, Golf Canada should be credited with, with building these programs up and, uh, and and helping them out, whether it's be through the national team program or the young pro program. That's the way most countries now are doing it. They're assisting their players. And um, thankfully, through the Olympic program and, and national team programs and things like that, we're seeing uh, the growth at, at a lot of different levels. And a lot of it's cyclical, too. You know, you, you, you see all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of great male or female players and then maybe there's a little dip for a while and uh, now it's coming back up in the men's side and we're, we're probably just in a bit of a low with the women that's uh, that's understandable I mean there's going to be ebbs and flows I guess to the amount of good players coming up so I mean we see that even here uh, out in Quebec pretty much the same stuff I have yeah, um, I have uh, one last question for you Bob before you go yeah. who, um, I ask every single person this before the end of the pod but who would be uh, part of your foursome if you had to choose three people to play golf with <laughs> wow that's a good one um you know i'd probably play with mike weir and uh because i've i've just i've actually never played with mike which is unusual but uh he's a great player and i'd love to play with him um probably arnold palmer because arnold palmer i've met i got to interview arnold palmer a number of times he played he won the canadian open at my course at weston and so we always had a little bit of a special bond with that. And then I guess the last guy would be my dad, you know, he's uh, 88, just about to turn 88 in May. He's a, uh, a long member, long time member at Weston. And he and I play in the father son every year, alternate shot competition. We've won it twice. Came second last year. He was 80, 87 and we came, we came wow. second, which is a pretty good achievement. And I love it because he always stands on the first tee and he says, he says, I don't want to put any pressure on you. He says, but your name is, is in the will, but it's just in pencil. we have a lot of fun so it's always uh, there's nothing better than and I think most people can attest to this there's no nothing better than playing with one of your parents and uh, I've been lucky enough to have a whole lifetime of playing with my dad yeah kind of similar for me Uh, people ask me that question a lot and I think my my foursome would be my brother my father and tiger to be honest more than anyone else Um, (laughs) and I think it's just because I think my family would enjoy playing with Tiger as much as I would so that would be a crazy experience and I think there's nothing better than playing with your with your parents plus my dad is not the greatest I mean not the greatest of golfers he's like a 15 handicap he's like your everyday golfer on the weekend right Right. Um, and I think that seeing him get nervous in front of Tiger would be hilarious to be honest (laughs) you're mean you're mean (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be a good time because I know that I wouldn't be that nervous but I know that they definitely will be (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I love it. <laughs> well, Bob, I uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, such a good, fun episode. Uh, you're the first Canadian, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that I've had on the show. So um, Wow, I'm honored. Yeah, well, you, I guess, and Matt Wilson. But Matt Wilson was the first ever episode we did a long time ago, and we were like newbies. So let's say like in the later stages of the ep- of the podcast. Well, that's great. Well, you do a wonderful job, and, uh, and your story is uh, very enlightening and, and very thrilling for me i i was proud to write the story on you and uh but i think your your story is uh, is amazing and congratulations on everything that you've been able to achieve thanks my dude we'll uh we'll try to find a way once this whole virus situation settles down and we'll have a, a game of golf together i'd love that it'll be great all right bob take care take care bye-bye so that was the interview with bob weeks What we would love for you guys to do who are listening in right now is to contact us on our social media pages at Golf, which is my last name, Golf, or at Golf, which is my personal pages, Twitter, Instagram, I'm everywhere. And send us some suggestions about maybe some other people you would like to have on the show. 
Um, you know, there's a wide range of topics and parts of the golf world that we haven't necessarily covered yet and we would love to. Uh, so if you know a specialist in a certain area, um, please feel free to let us know and we will contact them and reach out to them and, and try to get them on the show. Um, we also, as always, have our Skillist series available. Uh, which is the ultimate guide to shallowing the shaft. Basically, if you are somebody who comes down very steep in the downswing, so the shaft angle being very upright, and you cut across the ball very out to in path, you know, big slices, uh, this video series is for you. I mean, we talk about every single detail involved, the variables that are in play, how they affect other areas of the golf swing, what you should look for, and how to be able to self-correct, which is a huge component to getting better at the game of golf. Uh, so as always, check that out on check that out on the uh, platform Skillist, which is basically where I run my online lessons as well. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and uh, you know we're going to be releasing two episodes weekly for the foreseeable future. So we will be dropping them every Monday, every Thursday. Just a little reminder for you guys, and uh, have a great weekend.